Well, good morning. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma Northwest. And I know for a lot of us, especially if you have kids, this is the last weekend of summer, right? Uh, kids are going back to school. Most of our kids are going back to school this next week. And uh, Jody and I, we've been on vacation the last couple weeks and taking some time away. Our first week, we got to go out of town. Just the two of us, kids got to go to grandparents. So that was really refreshing for us to do that. And this past week, we just kind of stayed around and got some stuff done at the house and just enjoyed some family time together. And as a lot of you all know, um, the spring and early summer months at SOMA are really busy because we're planning and looking forward ahead to our upcoming ministry year, which starts here in August uh, each year. And so we're doing lots of meetings and budget talks and planning and calculations and ministry planning. And so just a lot of extra meetings on top of uh, just our normal schedule and the normal responsibilities that I have and others of us have uh, uh, to pastor and to do the things that we do week in and week out. And so I just want to thank uh, our other elders, Pastor Nate and Pastor Andrew, our staff, uh, and many others of you who made it possible for Jody and I to get away for a couple of weeks. It was a real blessing for us. And uh, special thanks to Pastor Andrew for filling in the last couple weeks and, and preaching last week and getting us back into the story of Exodus and the book of Exodus. And as we just heard a few minutes ago before we sang, uh, we are jumping into three stories this morning, and we're looking at three stories together. Um, and as Pastor Andrew said last week, um, what we have seen in the first 15 and a half chapters of the book of Exodus is somewhat of an origin story for the people of God, the nation of Israel. We have seen God deliver them out of over 400 years of slavery in Egypt and deliver them not to just freedom to do whatever they wanted, just delivering them out of slavery and saying, all right, have a good life, you do what you want, but delivering them to a different identity a new identity as his people, his people under his rule, under his reign, living life with him as he designed their life to be. This is the beginnings we're seeing here in Exodus of God shaping and forming and making a people for himself. God making good on the promises that he had made hundreds of years before to their forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to make for himself a people and bring them into a land so that they would be a light to the other nations of the world, showing who the one true God is to the other people that they were living around, the cultures, the nations that were surrounding them. And this is God beginning to make good on that promise. And so this morning, as we walk through these three stories that we just heard read, we are going to see that God's provision of food and water is a tangible expression of a bigger reality that he wanted his people to know and to understand. God wants his people to know him to know his presence with them, and to know the life that he has created them to live, the life that they were created to experience and they were delivered from Egypt to experience. And 
as always, what we're going to see is that this story fits within a bigger narrative. That what God is doing for his people in this time and in this place, in these stories, have far-reaching purposes. They have bigger purposes. They are future-oriented. They are teaching the generations to come. And they are paving the way for Jesus Christ himself. And that's where we're going to end up this morning. But if, you've, if you're still there, Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 22... I'm not going to read through these again. We just, we just heard that. But at the beginning of, of this passage in verse uh, 22, um, Moses tells us that three days have passed since the parting of the Red Sea. God's miraculous act of deliverance. Once again, bringing his people out of Egypt and bringing them to the Red Sea where in an instant they went from believing that they were about to be slaughtered to seeing their enemies, their oppressors, completely defeated by God, to understanding and realizing and living in the fact that they were finally free from the Egyptians, that God had done this for them. They were free, but as they move forward away from the Red Sea, they enter into the desert. They begin to travel through the desert, and very quickly, they begin to experience the harsh realities of desert life. They begin to experience the fact that they are in the hot, humid, arid desert without any water. And the place that they come to, they finally see water, but that water is bitter. It's undrinkable water. And what do they do? They grumble against Moses. They grumble against Moses. They do not have any water, and they grumble. And I don't know about you, but it's easy for me when I read these stories and I read about the people grumbling against Moses, grumbling against God. I wrap my self-righteous robes around me, and I look down on them, and I say, how could they do this? How could they, after all they've experienced up to this point, God delivering them from Egypt, God defeating their enemies at the Red Sea in this miraculous act, God providing for them, how could they face God with a straight face and complain and grumble and question if God was going to provide for them here? Now, They were wrong to grumble. They were wrong to forget. They were wrong to speak out and accuse God and accuse Moses of things that they knew weren't true. But listen, we can have some grace for these people. Because if we get frustrated because our store doesn't have our favorite flavor of LaCroix or whatever your sparkling water of choice is, we can have some charity with these people who were out of water, who did not have any water in the desert, okay? I was reading an African commentary on this passage, and it gave a different perspective, one that I think is really important. And the, the, the commentator writes that we Africans know what this is like. They can have sympathy for what 
these folks are like because they know what it is to live without water. They know what it is to live without food and the harsh realities, the harsh effects of famine and thirst. And it does, it makes you act in an irrational way. And that's something for us that, you know, we don't always, we can't connect with. It's not our reality. These people were thirsty. They were in the desert. They were outside of the life that they had lived, even in Egypt under slavery. They were outside of that. They were experiencing a new life. And so they grumbled, but God, notice, God does not chide them for this. God does not get on their case for grumbling. What does he do? He tells Moses to take a piece of wood and to throw it into this water. And just like God has done over and over again, God shows that he is more powerful than the forces of nature. And he makes water behave contrary to its nature for the good of his people. And this water that was bitter and undrinkable becomes a source of life for his people. God provides for them. He doesn't punish them. He doesn't get angry with them. He doesn't slap them in the face with all the things that he has done for them up to this point. God moves towards them in grace. And he provides for their need. This is also, Moses mentions that this is also an opportunity that God uses to test his people. Now, when we think of testing, we think of pass-fail situations, right? But what God is doing here is not testing his people in a way to figure out whether or not they're worthy to be his people. He's not using this as a test, as an excuse to dump these people and to move on with a new plan, plan B. What God is trying to do here in issuing these instructions, when he says in uh, verse 25, at the end of verse 25, the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and to do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his degrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals what God is doing here is he wants, God, he wants his people to learn what it means to be his people. That these are tests for their own benefit. God is teaching them what it means to obey him. What it means to follow him. What it means to live this life with him as his people. God wants them to have life instead of death. God wants them to have health and not sickness. And these three stories here are linked by God's testing. And it's God teaching them very early on in their life as his people what it means to obey, how to obey, and that that obedience will keep them from experiencing the horrors and reliving the horrors that they experienced in Egypt. And it's no coincidence that after this, bitter water turning sweet, becoming drinkable water in a dry place, in an arid place, in a place where they experience real need and real thirst, that the next place that Moses mentions that they come to is a place called Elam that is described as a beautiful place, a lush place, 
a place with water, a place that is full of life. And I think this is a picture that God is showing his people of what he wants their life to be. He wants them to experience real life, that following him, obeying him, walking with him, depending on him to provide will lead to real life, real experience of real life. And as we move into chapter 16, after they leave Elam, they continue to travel through more desert. And in a, about a month into their journey, they face another crisis, not with water, but with food. They're out of food. They don't have any more food. And what happens again? They start grumbling. They grumble against Moses, and they start saying some crazy things. You brought us out here in this wilderness to let us die of starvation. I mean, think about that. God did all of the stuff that he did to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. Seriously? Just so they could die in the wilderness without food? He, did, he was able to defeat Pharaoh and Pharaoh's entire army, to defeat the gods of the Egyptians, to part the Red Sea, to let millions of people walk through, to crash the seas back down on Pharaoh and his army, and yet God cannot provide food for his people in the desert, that now they were going to die because of God's inability to provide them with food? This is obviously an outlandish accusation against Moses and against God based on all that they had experienced up to that point. And it was not right, but they were hungry. They were hungry. Again, they were experiencing the harsh realities of this desert. And God was testing them again. And God, again, does not jump all over them. God does not punish them. God does not discipline them. God does not make them feel guilty for their grumbling against him. Instead, what does God do? He moves towards them. And he opens up the heavens and rains down bread for them. How beautiful is this? How beautiful in the face of accusations, in the face of grumbling and complaining that God doesn't turn away and distance himself, but God moves towards his people in provision and in love. They were facing a real need and God met that need. And he sent quail in the evening and he sent manna, which is some kind of a bread-like substance, in the morning. And what's interesting here is that with God's provision, God provides instructions on how they're supposed to handle and receive his provision. Very specific instruction. Only gather as much as they need for each day. Only gather as much as they need for each day. And on the sixth day, gather twice as much because they are not to pick it up on the seventh day. But notice what it says. We're not going to go into all of the Sabbath stuff because we did a series on the Sabbath. We taught through a series on the Sabbath at the beginning of this year, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that. But one of the things I want to point out here is that on the seventh day, it isn't that God rained down manna from heaven 
and manna was, and quail was all over the ground on the seventh day. And the people were just supposed to look at it and not pick it up. No, God did not provide manna and quail on the seventh day. God stopped his work. And so his people were to follow his lead and not go out and pick up. Because what was God trying to teach them? Only gather enough for every day. And then one day every week, one day out of seven, you are not supposed to pick up food because I am not going to send food. God was teaching them to rest like he rested. And God was teaching them that each and every day, I will provide for you. That you don't have to hoard it. You don't have to rig the system that I've created and manipulate it to make sure that you're okay. But each and every day, you depend on me to provide exactly what you need for that day. God is teaching them dependence. God is teaching them that to be his people, to follow him, to obey him, meant that they had to trust him, to trust that he was good, to trust that he would take care of them, to trust that he would meet each and every day their most basic needs. What God is doing here is he is shaping his people with these practices, practices that they would follow for years and years and years. And Moses tells us here that this way of eating, that this way of living, depending on God every day for what they needed that day was how his people would live for the next 40 years in the desert, that they would do this day after day after day. God teaching them day after day after day, you can trust me. I will provide for you. You can depend on me because I love you and you're my people. This last story in chapter 17 is similar to the first. The Israelites are still in the desert. They're traveling from place to place. And so they camp at this place called Rephidim. And again, they find that there's no water here. There's no water to sustain them. There's no water to drink And this time, they don't just grumble with Moses. They fight with Moses. They fight with him. They quarrel with him. They accuse him. They accuse God again. And Moses says, why do you put God to the test? God had been testing them. He had been showing them what it meant to obey him, what it meant to daily depend on him. And now they were quarreling against God. They were fighting with God. And Moses accuses them of putting God to the test, making God once again prove to them that he was God, making God once again prove to them that he would meet their needs, that he would supply what they needed and what they lacked. They were forcing God's hand, but yet again we see a patient and a gracious God. A God who does not move away from them. A God who does not turn his back on them. A God who does not get his pride hurt. A God who is not offended. A God who is big enough to take their accusations, to take their quarreling, to take their doubts, and yet still move towards them in grace 
and in provision. And he told Moses to take that staff, that same staff from Egypt, and to strike a rock. And when Moses did that, water poured out of that, wa- of that rock for his people to drink. What we see in these three stories over and over again is God communicating to his people, I am the same God with the same power that brought you out of Egypt. I am the same God with the same power leading you through this desert land. I am the same God and I have the same power and that same power will lead you into the land that I have promised you. No obstacle was too great for God to overcome. No need was too big for God to meet. That they could trust that this God who had rescued them from Egypt was the God who was going to be with them. What we see in these stories is God not just providing for their physical needs, but God showing up in their lives, his presence with them. Notice in chapter 16 that God comes to them in that cloud. Remember, this is that that same cloud as they cross through the Red Sea that they could see out in front. The cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night. The same cloud that in a few chapters they will see at Mount Sinai. That same cloud later in Exodus when God instructs them to build a tabernacle where they can worship God. That same cloud that will inhabit that tabernacle. What God is doing here is he is telling his people, I'm not a distant God, but I'm a God that is with you. Each and every day, my presence is with you. That is what they were made for. That is the life that God had rescued them out of Egypt to experience. A life with him, knowing his presence, experiencing his presence day in and day out. This was a small thing for God to do, to provide them bread and to provide them meat, to provide them water. This was a small thing for God to do, but God used these daily provisions to teach them a bigger lesson, and that is, I am with you. You are my people. I love you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will always be with you. I will protect you. My presence is with you, and that's a beautiful thing. Remember, what we've been saying since the beginning of our look at Exodus is that even though this is an origin story for the people of God, it's really a story about God. It's a story about God revealing himself. It's a story about God revealing more and more about who he is, about how he works in this world, about what his desires are for his people. God was shaping them and teaching them what it meant to be his people. They weren't free to define their identity on their own. They weren't free to figure out life on their own. God's presence with them, shaping them, defining them, forming them, bringing them into the identity that God had saved them to know and to live in. And notice something else here. In each of these stories, there's something that is done for the future. In the first story, they name that place Mara, which is the Hebrew word for bitter. In the second story, God tells Moses to take some of that manna and to save it and to put it away 
as an object lesson for future generations. And here in this last story, Moses again names that place testing and quarreling in Hebrew. What God is doing here in these stories, in this place, and in this time is not only for these people, but for all of God's people who would come after. To be able to look back and to learn something, to see something, to know something about who God is and how he interacts and relates with his people. And that's where I want to close this morning, by turning to John chapter 6. Because Jesus himself refers back to the stories that we just read here. As he explains to the people in his day what he has come to do and who he is. John chapter 6, I'm going to start in verse 25. So at the beginning of John 6, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with a very small amount of fish and bread, a miraculous act. And then as his disciples get in a boat and head to the other side of the lake, Jesus comes and walks on water before them, gets in the boat with them, And together they arrive on the other side of the lake. And that's where we pick up in John chapter 25. And when they, the people, uh, the Jews who he was ministering to and preaching to, who had seen him do all of these miraculous things, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, teacher, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me. Not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, well, what signs will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The people were looking for him and they were following him because they were amazed at the miracles that he did, but also because he filled their stomachs, because he had met a very basic need. I mean, who wouldn't follow somebody who's passing out free food? You know, like that, that is, that's a great motivator. Somebody who's passing out food, who's doing amazing things and meeting very tangible needs. 
But Jesus here calls them out and says, you are looking for me not because of what I'm doing, but because simply I met a need that you have and I filled your stomachs. What John tells us at the beginning of chapter 6 is all of this takes place leading up to the days of the Passover festival. Each year, Leading up to this Passover festival, the celebration, the remembrance of God bringing his people out of Egypt, the Jews would study these passages. Their minds were on the Exodus story, and they were looking for this new Moses, this new deliverer who would come and redeem them, who would bring them into the kingdom that God had been promising them. And the Jews were thinking about and studying this Exodus story. They were making the connections here with what Jesus is saying and what he is doing with the bread, with the manna that came from heaven in the Exodus story. And they start talking of that. And they start referring back to that here. And Jesus tells them, listen, all of that points to me. Moses did not give you bread. My father gave you bread. And my father didn't just give you bread so it could fill your stomachs. My father was teaching you and setting your expectations as a people for generations to come for the true bread that would come. That would not only fill your physical stomachs, but would fill your entire life. That would bring nourishment to your hunger that would give water to quench your thirst. They were looking and they were waiting for God's wisdom. They were looking and they were waiting for God's blessings to come, the life and the freedom that God had promised them. They were looking for this Messiah and this deliverer. They were made for the presence of God, to live in God's presence at his people. That's what would truly satisfy them. And Jesus is standing before them and saying, listen, it's me. I am that bread. I am that life. I am that wisdom. In me, you will find blessing. In me, you will experience the life that you were created to experience. And look at what Jesus claims here. Whoever comes to him will never go hungry. Whoever believes in him will never be thirsty. This is what they were looking for. This is what they had spent their entire lives waiting for. Jesus standing right in front of them. And what does John say they do? They grumbled. They grumbled against Jesus. Just like God's people did back in the desert in the book of Exodus, these folks in Jesus' name, in Jesus' day, see Jesus. They hear Jesus. They experience the acts and the miracles that Jesus has performed. They hear the invitation of Jesus to come and to find life, and they grumble. And they say, it couldn't be this guy. He's the son of a carpenter. It couldn't be this guy. His words couldn't be true. This couldn't be the life that God meant for us to live. We are familiar with this kind of self-sabotage, aren't we? 
We long for a good life. We long for a life that is real, not some kind of a contrived version of life. We long for wisdom to navigate through the chaos of this world. We long for truth, what is real, instead of all of these competing narratives that we hear day in and day out. We long for security and peace and forgiveness. And Jesus invites us to satisfy those longings in him, to quench our thirst for life by coming to him. But so often what we do is look to everybody else and look to everything else instead of the true source of life. Just like the Israelites in the desert, just like the Jews in Jesus' day, we turn away and we say, Jesus can't be the guy for me. His words can't really be true. There has to be a different way. This way over here looks so much easier. It looks so much better. It looks so much more attainable than what Jesus is offering. And we go chasing after things that won't satisfy Truths that aren't really true and a way of life that ultimately won't bring about our flourishing. We all do this in different ways. And it's rarely a big once and for all decision like, hey, I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. None of us in here, I mean, we're all good Christian people, right? We would never say that. But what it is, is day in and day out, little decisions that we make, that, we, that lead us further and further away from the life that God has created us to live. Choosing autonomy over self-sacrifice. Choosing to believe our own version of truth instead of what God says is true. Choosing superficial pleasures over the deeper, soul-satisfying presence of God. And we wonder why we feel like we're missing something. We wonder why we feel hungry and we feel dissatisfied with life. Jesus isn't asking us to do some kind of religious gymnastics routine. He's not asking us to go live in a monastery. When the Jews ask him, what must we do to do the works of God? What's his response? Believe me. Believe that what I say is true. Take me at my word that you will find life in me. Believe that everything that you are searching for, everything that you were made for, is found in me and in nowhere else. Believe that the way of Jesus is the life-giving way. Believe that being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing the things that Jesus did is the life we crave. It's the life that we were made for. In a moment, we are going to take communion together, as is our practice week after week. We take a piece of bread, and we dip it in the juice, and we do that as a symbol. It's a symbol to us, a reminder to us of Jesus' body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us. Later in this passage here in John 6, Jesus said that his flesh is real food. 
that his blood is real drink, that for people to experience real eternal life, that they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And people were like, what? That's crazy. That's too hard to understand. We can't understand this. We're not down with that. Those who eat Jesus' body and drink his blood will live, Jesus said. And John tells us that at that point, many people turned away from him. Many people walked away from him because either they didn't understand it or they did understand it and didn't want it. And Jesus turns to his closest friends and he asks a very simple question. Will you go too? Are you going to leave me too? And I love Peter's response. To whom will we go? You have the words of life. Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. That the life God has created you and me to live. We will never experience that apart from Jesus Christ. We will never experience that apart from believing his words are true. That his way of life is the best way of life that we could ever imagine. It's the way of life that we were created for. And so as we come to communion this morning, we are declaring to ourselves and to each other that we believe that true life is found in Jesus. When we come and take communion, we are declaring to ourselves and to each other that we are rejecting all the other ways of life, all the other offers of fullness and flourishing, that we are putting our stake and our commitment and our faith in Jesus, that following him, living the life that he has called us to live, believing the words that he has given us is where real life is found. And it's found in no other place. You may need to do some confessing this morning. You may need to do some self-examination this morning. You may need to get before God this morning and ask him, where am I pursuing life outside of you? Where am I trying to find truth apart from your truth? Where am I trying to experience flourishing and blessing in ways that will ultimately bring me pain and death? God, just like he has done since the beginning of time, will not move away from us, but he will come to us. And he offers his presence. He offers himself to help us experience the life and to live the life that he has created for us to live. So I want to encourage you to come this morning and declare that, to believe that. We'll have stations to my right and to my left. We'll also have a gluten-free station in the back for those who need it. Pray with me. God, we acknowledge that it's so easy to chase after life and to think about what we need as being what we define as true, what we think is best, what other people offer us. 
And so, God, I pray that this morning, collectively, we as a people, we as a church community, would be a place and would be a light to this city that reveals that true life is found in you. I pray that this morning as we come in this simple act of taking bread and juice, that through the power of your spirit, it would solidify in our hearts that we believe this is true. And that it's not just something we say on Sundays, but it's a conviction that changes our lives starting tomorrow, for the rest of this week, for this month, for this year, for the rest of our lives, that every single day we look to you and we depend on you because we know and we believe and we are convinced that true life is found in you. We pray for your power. We pray that we would be aware of your presence in our lives and in our church community. In Jesus' name, amen.